The West African nation Liberia arose from the aspirations of the American Colonization Society, which attempted to persuade free blacks to emigrate from the United States to that colony. Ultimately, the colonization scheme failed, but Liberia endured. No state was more involved in the project than Virginia. Virginians figured prominently among both leaders of the ACS and settlers building a new life in Africa. Though their paths rarely intersected, these black and white Virginians played key roles in founding Liberia. Marie Tyler McGraw will share with us today the compelling story of hope and misunderstanding, race and freedom that is the subject of her latest book. Marie Tyler McGraw earned a PhD in American Studies from George Washington University, taught undergraduate American history for over a decade, and for the last 25 years has been engaged in public history, working as a postdoctoral researcher at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, a senior historian at the Valentine Richmond History Museum, education division program officer at the National Endowment for the Humanities, and a historian for the History Office of the National Park Service. For the last 10 years, she's been an independent researcher and writer. In addition to her book on the subject of today's lecture, she is the author of At the Falls, Richmond, Virginia, and Its People. Most recently, she's been the recipient of three grants from the Virginia Foundation of the Humanities, for the Humanities, to provide a website, database, historic documents, and essays on Virginia immigrants to Liberia. Please join me in welcoming Marie Tyler McGraw, who will speak to us about an African Republic, black and white Virginians in the making of Liberia. Thank you very much. It's always nice to be in Richmond. It's a great city great people and great architecture, and I really enjoy it. Um, I'm going to have to talk fairly fast, I think, because there's a lot I'd like to say, and I don't have a whole lot of time. I want to leave time for questions at the end, because no matter how much I think I've covered everything anybody could think about, I haven't. And there are questions that come from the proverbial left field at the end that are always very interesting. Um, I'm talking today about Virginians in Liberia, but because Virginians were so connected with Liberia for the first, throughout the 19th and early 20th century, really, I'm telling the national and international story at the same time that I talk about Virginia and Liberia. I'm going to do it through um, two little scenarios or events I'm going to describe, two money trails, and uh, some character sketches. Um, I also want to mention a website that uh, you can get at www.vcdh.virginia.edu slash Liberia. Or you can do what I do, which is just on the uh, uh, subject line, type in Virginia Immigrants to Liberia, and it'll pop right up for you. This is a, uh, a very useful website that is not only a list of 3,700 immigrants from Virginia to Liberia by county and last name, but essays and illustrations about the immigrants and the colonization society and a pretty thorough list of the emancipators by name and county. The website was funded by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities and constructed by the Virginia Center for Digital History that's now part of the Institute for Advanced Technology at UVA. Deborah Lee and I were the historians for the project. 
We have been very fortunate to get a lot of response from people who have broadened what we know by looking at this and sending us little more bits and pieces of information. Uh, so I hope if you're at all interested in this topic, you'll check it out. Now my work has been mostly on 19th century library in Virginia, but I think you'll be able to see how some decisions made in the 1800s or simply the realities of the situation led to some of the problems that Liberia has experienced in the last 40 years or so, 30 years. I'm going to move forward tentatively and carry the core issues, which are money and culture, into the 20th and 21st century. First, and very important, and, and Lee uh, touched on this in his introduction, the 19th century American Colonization Society, which for brevity I'm going to call the ACS from now on, that project of trying to persuade, not force, free blacks to immigrate to their colony of Liberia could never have been accomplished. Very few free blacks volunteered to go, and greater number of volunteers would simply have overwhelmed the meager resources of the society. So this was not ever really about getting all free blacks or all persons of African ancestry out of the states. It was more about the growing anxiety in the middle of the 19th century about the issue of what is the status of free blacks, of whom there were thousands, uh, what is the meaning of race, what is the meaning of citizenship. These are questions that are very much under discussion uh, everywhere. So that's what gave rise to the Colonization Society and its project, and it was at, at the center of most 19th century um, politics, thinking, up till about 1870. All right, who went, to, who went to Liberia? Why did they go? Who thought it was a good idea? Today, the American Colonization Society is barely mentioned in history books, um, or books for general readers, or textbooks. But it was for the period from 1820 to 1870, as I said, pretty close to, pretty important to the national political debate over slavery. The Colonization Society believed that the nation's free blacks could never become full citizens in the United States because of white prejudice, and that they should be assisted financially to immigrate to another place outside the United States. The, the Virginians who were central to the formation of the society, I'll just tell you right now, were divided in their own motives. It ranged all the way from those who were gradual emancipationists coming out of the revolutionary tradition, which meant that they thought that they could gradually end slavery in the United States over time through a, very, a variety of measures to those who supported slavery and wanted to get rid of free blacks because they confused the situation. It, all blacks, all African Americans should be enslaved and all white people should be free and free blacks who did not have the rights of citizens simply confused the situation. So the Virginia members are illustrative of the national membership because they range from those who would like to see total emancipation to those who wanted to um, uh, preserve slavery. About 30% of, as I, th as I said, that there are about 3,700 immigrants from Virginia, and of them, 30% roughly were free blacks, mostly uh, who left for Liberia in the first decade of its existence. Let me see. Yeah, there's my timeline. Um, Virginia sent more immigrants to Liberia than any other state. If you put Maryland and Virginia together, the Chesapeake Bay states, they sent almost 60% of the immigrants who went before uh, the Civil War. 
1860 period. Virginia also had more colonization auxiliary societies, that is little auxiliaries out in the counties and towns than any other state except Pennsylvania. I used to say than any other state and then I counted Pennsylvania, but we were second. Um, we'll look briefly at this timeline and give you a sense of what's going on on the west coast of Africa and here. Now, what's now Liberia, current scholarship indicates that there were 16 different groups moved in there with three different base languages about the 15th, 16th century. Uh, moving from Central Africa where they needed, they needed more space, more land, and also there were some wars they were trying to get away from. Beginning about 1400, most of you know the story of all, every, all the ships going down the West African coast. Um, so that their experience dealing with traders and dealing with Europeans, the coastal groups had a lot of experience dealing with traders before the Americans got there. Then the nature of that trade changed in the 16 and 1700s where, when the European settlements in North and South America needed enslaved labor for their uh, cash crop economies and this begins to dominate the African trade where it had been diverse. Now the trade in human beings becomes um, more important to this trade. In 1807 and 188, Britain and the United States end slave importation from Africa. It was in our constitution. It was 20 years later we did it. The British did it, had their own interesting struggle. But that doesn't mean slave importation totally ended. The British and American navies were patrolling the coast, trying to intercept slave traders for decades afterward, up till the Civil War. Here in Richmond, the African Missionary Society was formed at the First Baptist Church in Richmond by a free black man named Lot Carey and a white shoemaker turned shoe merchant named William Crane. The next year, the American Colonization Society was founded, essentially, and I'm coming back to this in a minute, by Charles Fenton Mercer of Loudoun County, based on the Sierra Leone model, by which I mean the British had set up a refuge for uh, blacks in Britain and for American blacks who had left with the British at the end of the Revolution and gone to Canada. All right, they, they, they had set up Freetown, Sierra Leone for them, and this was the model to a great extent for the Colonization Society's uh, idea of what to do. Between 1820 and 1822, they finally established a permanent settlement at what was called Cape Mezzerado, later became Monrovia, near Sierra Leone. The land, was acquired, the land acquired was later called Liberia. Actually, the first name of that settlement was Christopolis, and it wasn't until 18, 24 that became Monrovia, named after President James Monroe. Now, back, back here in Richmond, Lot Carey and Colin Teague formed the Providence Baptist Church in the home of William Crane, the white Baptist minister and shoemaker, and they leave for Sierra Leone in Cape Macerado. Just a couple of years later, Colston Waring in Petersburg is asked by Gilfield, see there's an extra I in Gilfield, I apologize for that. <laughs> sent by Guilfield Baptist Church in Petersburg by the church to investigate Liberia. He comes back with a positive report about it, and approximately 100 Petersburg free blacks go to Monrovia in 1824. In that decade, Lot Carey questions the authority of the white colonization agents frequently and leads an insurrection, but he's not arrested 
In fact, they wisely decide that they need to share power with Carey, and uh, he is put in charge of the colony as vice agent and, or acting governor when the agent, Yehudi Ashman, leaves. Um, 1827, the first group of emancipated slaves leaves Virginia. Up till then, it's been free blacks. 1828, Lot Carey's killed in a gunpowder explosion. And 1829, another large group leaves Petersburg. Joseph Jenkins Roberts and his family uh, are with them and other cities like Richmond, Norfolk, Petersburg, and Portsmouth um, send people as well. The last large group of free blacks leaves Virginia in 1832-33, and they are getting out of Southampton County after Nat Turner's insurrection. And they are not perhaps as persuaded that they want to go to Liberia. They just know for sure they want to get out of Southampton County because the reaction to Nat Turner's insurrection was a lot of terror in the night for free blacks in, in the counties that bordered North Carolina. So they sold their property at a loss and they were the last group. After that, it's pretty much um, emancipated slaves for the next, up till the 1850s, and then you get a resurgence of free blacks leaving Virginia for Liberia. Now, this is Jehudi Ashman's map of Liberia in 1828. You can't read it. I can't read it. But I like it because, A, it's the first map, and, B, he notes where all the ethnic tribal groups are at the time before they've been displaced. You can see how people are spread out along the coast, um, who is controlling what sections, where the few American settlements are, um, And I guess that's, and there's an inset of the town of Monrovia, which you can see is a, is a planned grids city there. Uh, it's interesting because when it was Christopolis, it was modeled like Washington on spokes. But we changed it. Okay. Okay, now I want to um, describe a couple of events that I hope will uh, illustrate how diverse and complicated the motives were for supporting Liberia. Here's one event. It was a few days after Christmas in 1816 when a highly respectable company of gentlemen, mostly New England clergymen and Chesapeake area politicians, met in the hall of the House of Representatives to form the American Colonization Society. Uh, they were going to write a constitution and they were going to uh, petition Congress for money uh, to colonize free blacks with their consent outside the states. Their, their petition to Congress said, if they, free blacks, be permitted to remain among us in this state of imperfect connection, just raised from the abyss of slavery, but not to the level of freedom, suspended between degradation and honor, this unfortunate race will perish. That was their, that was their position, that there was no real place for free blacks to grab hold in the United States of 1816. Uh, now, my cast of characters up here, we're just about to take up the first five of them because uh, they were at the founding meeting. The true founder of the ACS was Charles Fenton Mercer of Loudoun County, who believed that Virginia would never really prosper as long as slavery existed. He believed in internal improvements, build roads, canals, trains. He, be he believed in industrialization. He did not think Virginia should remain a one crop or uh, uh, Tidewater-dominated society. So he was among those Virginians who wanted to end slavery for the sake of white Virginia. 
and he hoped that the existence of a free black colony would encourage emancipation. That led him to work vigorously for the formation of this national society, which when he described it was purposely vague. Uh, he didn't touch on slavery directly. He didn't directly deal with that question because he wanted support for his plan from Northerners and Southerners. He envisioned it as a national plan where they could then approach Congress and say, all the states are in favor of this, give us money, we'll start this project. He never got that support. Within two, three years, the Lower South became suspicious and dropped out, and New England just, you know, just wasn't interested. So the strength of the colonization society was always in the middle states between New York State and North Carolina, especially Maryland and Virginia, those border states. Okay, that's Mercer's perspective. William Meade, an energetic, evangelical, Episcopal minister, was beginning his career as an activist cleric in Virginia. He would eventually become Episcopal bishop of Virginia. Many 19th century evangelical Virginians believed that Christian African Americans could go to Africa and Christianize West Africa and maybe even all of Africa. Meade favored colonization for that reason, but also, and very importantly, for the sake of the souls of both black and white Virginians. He felt slavery corroded, corrupted the souls of both black and white Virginians. He was tireless in his efforts to form colonization auxiliaries in towns and counties, especially in the first decade of the society. We'll get back to those gentlemen in a minute. Uh, I'm out of order here. I'm jumping down to Bushrod, Washington. Bushrod Washington was the nephew of George Washington. He inherited Mount Vernon, and he was a Supreme Court justice. He had been a lawyer in Richmond, and Henry Clay, another founder of the Colonization Society, had been a law clerk for him here in, in Richmond. Excuse me. Um, Bushrod Washington was not particularly enthusiastic about the idea of the Colonization Society, but he was persuaded to act as the president because the society wanted to present itself as a national patriotic organization. And having somebody with the name Washington who was living in Mount Vernon as the president helped that image a lot, they hoped. Okay, now we'll bounce up to John Randolph of Roanoke, uh, congressman from Virginia. He was a conservative in colonization as he was in many things. He came to the first meeting of the Colonization Society, that organizational meeting in the House of Representatives. He stood up and said that he favored colonization because, quote, it will tend to make slave property more secure, unquote, if all free blacks are removed from the United States. Having made his provocative statement on the subject that they hoped they could keep under wraps, he, uh, he left. And I can't find any record of him being a financial supporter of the ACS or being involved with its activities after that. He was more like a, a little mischief maker at that meeting. He, then he freed his own slaves in his, in his will. So uh, now John Tyler, John Tyler, congressman from Virginia, present at the first meeting and later president of the United States, was the active pro-slavery monitor at the early Colonization Society meetings. The ACS was always monitored from within by pro-slavery and states' rights people, especially John Tyler, who attended meetings to, as he said, keep an eye out for anyone attempting to promote emancipation. He was candid about his views, quote, the moment in which I discover any improper design on the part of the society will be the date of my oppositions to its views. 
And on the subject of the society's efforts to obtain federal funds, he said, quote, it has no such constitutional power. This matter must be left to the state and to individual exertions, unquote. Well, Tyler turned out to be right. I don't know about the constitutional power, but they didn't get any federal money, that's for sure. Uh, that is indeed what happened. All right. Um, within two years, I want to move back one. Yeah. Within two years after its founding, the Society sent agents to West Africa to investigate a region near Sierra Leone, and in 1820 and 21, they forced leaders of several of these coastal ethnic tribal groups to sell land to them um, along the coast. And by, by forced, I mean when they didn't want to do it, they, a gun was put to the heads of a couple of them by a Lieutenant Stockton of the U.S. Navy, and they, they signed. Uh, so for the next 45 years, until the end of the Civil War, the society sought to persuade free blacks to immigrate. All right. Now I'm going to do another gathering and go back Wait a minute. Uh, to this. This is my second event. Here's another gathering, much smaller than the meeting in the Hall of House of Representatives. This is in the Richmond home of William Crane, a white shoe merchant originally from New Jersey. It's a prayer service held in the winter of 1821. Lot Carey and Colin Teague are present with their families. Carey and Teague are free black men who have earned enough money to buy their freedom and that of their wives and children. All present are members of the First Baptist Church in Richmond, and in 1815, before the Colonization Society was founded, they formed the African Missionary Society. Crane set up a night school for free blacks and those um, enslaved men whose masters would permit them to attend. He taught reading and writing by reading from newspapers and from the Bible. When they read about the formation of the ACS, Teague and Carey decided they were going to go as missionaries. Because as Carey said, and I think many of you have heard this quote over the years, I wish to go to a country where I will be estimated by my merits, not by my complexion. In the parlor of William Crane, they formed the Providence Baptist Church and carried it to Liberia in 1821. Carey became the iconic, legendary settler, the frontier man. He was brave, he was clever, he was able to respond resourcefully to all the dangers that they encountered, and he was quick to challenge white authority. So from 1821 till his death in a gunpowder explosion in 1828, uh, Carey was a very forceful leader and a very powerful leader in the colony. Um, he's, he, I think he's seen as the pioneer. He's probably one of the two best known immigrants to Liberia, the other one being Joseph Jenkins Roberts from Petersburg and Norfolk. Um, he's been written about extensively, and for that reason, I don't want to focus on him for in, in this first group. I want to focus on somebody else who's in that parlor in the winter of 1821, a 14-year-old boy named Hillary Teague. He's the 14-year-old son of Colin Teague. Um, Teague is a saddler, and uh, he has bought his freedom, his family's freedom. When they arrive in Liberia, after a difficult first year, Colin Teague took his family to Freetown, Sierra Leone, which was more established, and um, et cetera. He made money there as a saddler, and Hillary Teague obtained a good education in British schools there and spent a lot of time chatting with uh, British officers stationed there who liked him. Apparently he was a favorite. So, but he was, his opportunities in Sierra Leone made him permanently angry at how his intellect and his options had been systematically stifled in Richmond. 
He admired the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution very much, but he resented that he had been excluded from its benefits. The Teagues returned to Monrovia in five years, and Hillary Teague became a Baptist minister and a newspaper editor. In the 1830s, he began writing uh, the first constitution for a republic, and in the 1840s, he wrote the Liberian Declaration of Independence, which echoes the American one, and he had a major part in writing the Liberian Constitution in 1847, also modeled on the American one. Hillary Teague also uh, became a binge drinker. Everybody wrote about it in their letters back, and it's even in his obituary. The obituary says he picked up the habit from hanging out with British officers. Who knows? Uh, I, I, I romantically think it's because of his love-hate relationship with Virginia, but anyhow, when a settlement called New Virginia was set up just south of Monrovia in the late 1840s, here's what he wrote in the newspaper. Quote, New Virginia is looking up. We trust we love all mankind, but somehow we do love Virginia and Virginians. How strange that we should love a place that despises us and casts us out. Well, let New Virginia copy all in the old that is good and reject the bad. That's why I think his binge drinking is related to this. Um, there is a real affection for Virginia on the part of these immigrants. And they like to be with other Virginia immigrants. And yet, they also feel very much the stepchild of the region. OK. Who who, since most, most northern free blacks completely rejected, not completely, but 97% rejected colonization, who was attracted to it? Well, I've already said that Vir Virginia and Maryland provided most of the free blacks, uh, uh, immigrants. And these were people who had been free for varying amounts of time. I mean, sometimes you can't even find out. They are many literate, they are traders, they can do math, they can drive a hard bargain in their fields, they are uh, blacksmiths, saddlers, boatmen, uh, in almost any craft or artisanal trade you can mention is represented. And they're mostly coastal and river people. They live in Richmond, Petersburg, Portsmouth, Norfolk, a little bit Alexandria, if it's Maryland, Baltimore, etc. So they're familiar with trade, and I think that is one thing that influences many of them once they get to Liberia to engage in trade, to buy from the interior groups and sell to all the ships coming. Um, in the states, although they could own property, marry legally, and engage in business, they had no other real civic rights. Their status was a lot like that of black Americans in the Jim Crow era. Um, most free blacks, as I've said, tended to not be interested in Liberia, but about 14,000 African-Americans determined to go to Liberia between 1820 and 1860. Uh, many of those who left in the 1820s from Virginia and Maryland became the political and economic elite when the nation became independent. And they stayed as the political and economic elite for quite some time. Joseph Jenkins Roberts is the other legendary, iconic figure going from Virginia to Liberia. That man needs a really good biography. He was a complex person who had to navigate a lot of different cultural situations, and um, nobody has really, really dug into that yet. He was born in Norfolk, mother from Matthews County, grew up in Petersburg, stepfather was uh, a Roberts, stepfather taught him um, boating and trade, 
left with his family in 1829. Uh, Lot Carey had led the push against the ACS authority in the 1820s, and by the time Joseph Jenkins Roberts got there in 1829, he could take advantage of the commercial and political opportunities available to bright young men. There were lots given out in town and five acres to each settler on the edge of town. But you can just barely scratch out a living trying to farm there, and he, uh, Roberts and his friends, um, with their decent educations and their experience, knew that they, would go in, they needed to go into trade. They did. They became commission merchants. They did very well. They ended up buying ships, and so the economic and political elite becomes intertwined, often the case. Uh, in, by the 1830s, Roberts is a sheriff. By the late 1830s, 1840s, a deputy governor, then he's the governor, and then ultimately the first president. Uh, he was also wild, widely traveled. He made at least three trips back to the United States, maybe more, money-raising trips, gave talks in churches, Washington, New York, uh, in Virginia, went to England to try to get diplomatic recognition and some loans from the English, um, very widely traveled. I read, well, he came back, I think his most triumphant moment, because it happened right before some bad stuff happened, he came to back to Petersburg in 1869. The Civil War was over, um, slavery was dead, he was the, the ex-president of an African Republic, and he talked to the newspaper and, well, he made a speech that the newspaper reprinted in which he said the main reason that he had left in 1829 was the persecution of free blacks in Virginia that he was glad that it was, you know, they were Christianizing Africa and we were introducing trade, but the main reason was the persecution of free blacks. He felt he had hit the ceilings. He could not go any further, whatever his talents were, in the United States. Now, um, again, Roberts, there's a lot written about him. There needs to be more that's well-researched and uses the documents available, but I, I don't want to focus on him too much more. Petersburg celebrates him a lot. There's a lot of material out there. I want to focus on somebody else in this group, um, Harriet Waring. She was the wife of Colston Waring. You'll, rec you'll recall he was the man that the Guilfield Church sent out to see if Liberia was a good place. I want to talk about her life for a minute. After he died, she wrote a 15-page letter, obituary, to be printed in the African Repository, the journal. Maybe it wasn't that long. Um, I want to talk about her life for a minute because I think this is a typical of women who left, black women who left Virginia in this period. She was born free in Norfolk in 1796. The Graves family, the black Graves family in Norfolk was well established. She was born in what she called tolerable circumstances. At 17, she married another free black, Colston Waring. They were, she remembered, Quote, both very young, but we bid fair to do well in life. Waring felt called to preach and moved his young family to Petersburg. Harriet lacked his assurance that God had told them to leave Norfolk and go to Petersburg, but she went anyhow. It was a decade in which educated and respectable black families such as hers had hoped to gain from the uh, spread of liberty promised in the American Revolution, but they were severely disappointed by the early 1800s, it appeared that the benefits of the revolution were not going to trickle down to respectable church-going, educated, free blacks. Um, one response to this increased discrimination was to consider immigration to Liberia. 
Free blacks in port cities, especially in Virginia, preferred to immigrate with entire families and often in church, very large church groups. Waring, as a trustee of Guilfield, was sent to Liberia, came back, and as Harriet Waring says, people crowded our house after he went out to make an examination of the state of the colony, as many were anxiously desiring to know the truth respecting it. Waring's highly favorable report meant people were daily flocking to our house. Nearly 100 free blacks arranged to go to Liberia, and again, Harriet Waring reluctantly accompanied her husband on a religious pilgrimage, this time to West Africa. She, they had by this time, let's see, six children. Two boys died very fast of the malarial fever that's in, in Monrovia. And within four years, another two children died, but within that decade, uh, Harriet and Colston Waring had four more children. Um, this uh, death rate for children and old people was bad. It was not a good death rate anyhow. Many times I've tried to check on the death rate for other colonial projects when you move from one entire climate or uh, region to another. It's always pretty bad. I think this is worse than average but and catastrophic in some shipload cases. Other times people seem to do pretty well. Um, Waring had embarked as a missionary for, uh, for the African Baptist Missionary Society of Petersburg, but they weren't able to pay him much money, so he had to become a commission merchant like Roberts. But as his wife said, he knew he was not born to be a merchant. Of that, he was fully aware, which makes me think he was not quite the entrepreneur that Roberts was. Um, Waring was vice agent in charge and became, replaced Carey as pastor of Providence Baptist Church after Carey died. And uh, in 1834, Waring died. Uh, now, now, watch this because it gets complicated. Five years later, Harriet Waring married Nathaniel Brander, a also a Petersburg native, who had embarked to Sierra Leone on the first American Colonization Society in 1820. The marriage ceremony was performed by a Norfolk native, Abraham Cheeseman, who knew the Graves and Waring families in Norfolk. By 1843, Nathaniel Brander was a Supreme Court judge. Her, Harriet, Harriet Waring married, daughters married prominent men in the Liberian colony in the African Republic. Their oldest child, Susanna, born in Petersburg, married John N. Lewis, who was also from Petersburg and whose family accompanied the Warrens from Petersburg. Lewis was never president, but he held every other office in the um, early Republic, as far as I can see. Her second daughter, her second uh, Petersburg-born daughter, Jane Rose, married Joseph Jenkins Roberts who was to become the president of Liberia uh, and one of the most, and was the most important statesman of the 19th century. Now I, I go into all this because this pattern of intermarriage among Virginia families and free black families and early settler families is very characteristic of what goes on in Liberia for, I, uh, till the present almost, well certainly till 1980. Um, I won't go too much further into that, but it's, it's important to notice it. Now, Harriet Graves Waring Brander thus found herself to be a founding mother, the mother-in-law of the first president, uh, the wife of the Supreme Court justice, the uh, um, mother-in-law of other officers, and here she didn't want to go from Norfolk to Petersburg, and she didn't want to go from Petersburg to Monrovia, but she did, and she can only be described, I think, as a reluctant founding mother. But this is, but you know, uh, she ended up, 
as an important part of the history, but I think she'd just as soon have stayed in Norfolk. Uh, now, if I, I'm gonna have to move really fast here. I wanna do two real quick money trails. Um, the con Congress never gave the Colonization Society any money. Charles Fenton Mercer figured out a way to get some money from a slave trade act that was passed in 1819 to send missionaries, agents, and settlers to Liberia, and he ran that little scam as long as um, James Monroe and John Quincy Adams were president and closed their eyes to what he was doing. As soon as Andrew Jackson, who was his mortal sworn enemy, was elected, they looked at the books and said, ah, that's the end of that, and they never got another penny from the federal government as of 1828. Now, Meade had tried another way. Meade had tried the auxiliary way and set up a lot of auxiliaries, and they did continue to give money if they continued to meet. A lot of them had a rather short life, uh, the enthusiasm passed, they gave up after 10 years or so, or five, but places like the Richmond Manchester Auxiliary and the Loudoun County Auxiliary had a longer and more complicated history. So there was money from the auxiliaries, and they were always making appeals from church pulpits, give to Liberia, you know, for mission and, missions and patriotism. But they're totally dependent on donations, like any benevolent society, whereas they had seen themselves as political. Now the political part, is they could never get away from the issue of slavery just as it was starting to heat up in the United States. Um, the Nor Northerners wanted to know what their goals were. Southerners wanted to know what their goals were. They were highly suspect, and it didn't seem that this was something that could ever be um, accomplished. There, uh, so they could never get away from, from the political questions. In Virginia, here's what that meant. In 1816, it looked as if, in, in Charles Fenton Mercer's view, it looked as if North and South were ready to work together for gradual emancipation. This was gonna be the first quiet step. By 1820, the Missouri Compromise debates had brought out all the sectional divisions that were kind of hidden and not being talked about, and now North and South are glaring at each other, and they're gonna to continue to glare at each other. Um, Virginia was right on the cusp in many ways. Um, there was every sentiment you can imagine in Virginia, but the, the dominant group was coming to be the states' rights group in Virginia. And when the colonization is um, passed or circulated a petition to get federal money, uh, John Tyler and the other uh, states' rights politicians just exploded. They never tried it again. In fact, here's what they decided in Virginia. Since we can't get money from the federal government, let's take Virginia out of the National Colonization Society, make a state society, then we'll go to the Virginia legislature and they'll give us money. That's what they did in 18, late 1828, starting 1829. Well, do I have to tell you what happened? They didn't get much money from the state legislature either. <laughs> Only twice in the next 30 years did they get any money. People often point this out to me that they were, that the state legislature said it was going to give them money and uh, had, they asked for $100,000 after Nat Turner's insurrection. They got 18,000 for five years, which would have been 90, but they never got it, they never spent it because the legislature said, this is only for free blacks, we're not sending emancipated slaves to Liberia because we don't want to encourage emancipation and that we're not gonna force free blacks to go, but if they want to, they can have $30 per person. 
which is like half of you know the, the passage, let alone getting yourself set up there. So that didn't go very well, much of anywhere, and it expired after five years. 1850, they tried it again. First $25, which was less than before, and then they raised it to 50. But again, uh, you had to be um, a free black, not an emancipated slave, and uh, to raise the money, they put a tax of $1 on every free black in the state. So they got $18,000, and they only spent 5,000 <laughs> uh, on transportation. In uh, 1853, they, the state took over the, the colonization society and ran it for a few more years under, on the same basis and then shut down the whole thing because nobody was volunteering. That's the, that's the state story. I, I say this, this is a money trail because this, the, the colonization society at the state and national level was always in debt. Okay. Um, I want to talk just a minute about the early um, the immigrants in Liberia. They get a bad press. They get a really bad press. Everybody says, and there's some truth to it, that they went over there and they didn't respect the people that they met and they didn't try to work them into the government and that sort of thing. And, um, but let's, let's, let's be fair. Um, the immigrants to Liberia, both the emancipated slaves and the free blacks, had a, they had a totally 19th century American worldview. They thought people who weren't Christian were heathen or pagan and needed to be converted. They wore a lot of clothes. They looked at farmland and calculated how they could make it work for them. They had the same perspective when they got there that any other group, including the black abolitionists in the North, would have had in going to an area like that. Now, the, the situation in the 19th century was very difficult. Behind them, they have only an organization, not a country. They don't have a mother country. Before them, they have hostile groups who see these Americans as disrupting their trade and, and disrupting the relationships they've made with each other the ten, that they're carefully, um, tenuously going on with. They did, I think this group in the 1820 to 1870, probably did about as well as they could, but they could never find a cash crop. And, and later, they could never. Um, compete with the economies of, of scale that other nations were developing. For instance, um, they would sell some tobacco and uh, um, sugar for a while, especially during the Civil War. But right after that, Cuba and Brazil open up, and, and, and the economies of scale are so great that Liberia can't compete. They began a series of disastrous loans in 1871 at usurious extremely high interest rates. The British really took advantage of them. It's a long story I don't have time to go into. They never really got out of debt again. And that, was, that was compounded in the 20th century by deals that they made with Firestone Rubber and, and companies like, especially Firestone, but others, who controlled large portions of the country completely, politically, economically, uh, for payments that they made to the government, very small payments. So I'm going to, because I want questions, I'm going to skip over to just real toward the end here. They had 100 years of entrenched part, one-party rule. There was some early competition among the settler groups, but settlers were always in charge after independence in 1848. That one-party rule led to cronyism, nepotism, briberies, um, all the evils of the one-party state that you know about. 
Um, Liberia is rich in natural resources, but foreign companies extracted the primary resources at, cheaply and took them out of the country for the value-added processing. Um, it was growth without development. They didn't build roads, schools, nothing came of it, and the pay, and the pay was low. There was little regulation, little taxing, no infrastructure was added that benefited the nation or the people. Then in 1980, there was the uh, coup that brought down the last of the settler presidents, Tolbert, who actually, ironically, had tried to make some serious reforms, and brought in Samuel Doe, who quickly became a dictator-style, had a dictator-style government. He was overthrown in 1989 by Charles Taylor, that was followed by 14, 15 years of war, that, which ended in a kind of tenuous way in 2003 when uh, uh, UN troops, but mostly African uh, nation troops, uh, enforced a peace, and then the election of 2005 that brought in Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Um, if that's not a quick run through the 20th century, I, I've never heard one. <laughs> but my specialty is the 19th century. But I, you know, I think I hope you can see how some of the how some of the cultural differences and the problems with money made this a very difficult situation from day one. Okay, I'm going to stop there and ask for questions. Awesome. Yes, sir. No, you mean in looking at the 3,700 Virginians? Yes. Uh, no, but I can give you a, a, a the um, free blacks. Are you just talking about free blacks or emancipated slaves? Okay, a lot of the emancipated slaves were from more rural areas and, were, and came with somebody to the port of Norfolk or the port of Baltimore. A um, great many of the free blacks, I would say the far majority of the free blacks were urban. Okay. Did the uh, early settlers in uh, Liberia ever engage in slave trade? No, they did not. I mean, that, you read that, you hear that. It's absolutely not true. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf takes this up in her autobiography. She explains very well the, the apprentice system, the ward system. I take it up a little bit in this book. It's, it's complicated, but that's not, and it's, they actually died fighting the slave trade. I mean, the, their little militia units would go down and deal with whoever was docking at night and trying to get some people on board. And you read their letters in the Library of Congress, and they're saying, so-and-so was wounded because we had a war, and we pushed this Slater off, or they got off before we could catch him. No, there was never. You hear that, but it's not true. Okay, and uh, an emancipated black could never be, co be considered a freed black, right? No, a he would free, A free black had to be born that way? No, no, you could be, you were a free black if you were emancipated, or you bought your own freedom. You know, like Lot Carey and Colin Teague, they bought their freedom with their own money, and, and they would be considered free blacks. So how long after you became emancipated would you be considered free? Well, according to the Virginia legislature, you had to have been emancipated for at least a year before they would consider sending you to Liberia, if you want to use that standard of measurement. Thank you. Sure. Yes, ma'am. I didn't hear you mention James Madison, and it was my understanding that he left $3,000 as a codicil in his will, and that he was bitterly disappointed when they hadn't been able to emancipate them at the time of the Constitution, and that Lafayette held Washington uh, to task because they had an agreement 
that they would free their slaves and it uh, I don't feel yeah. that reflected in what you say honestly wanted them to have a free country and have a constitution based on ours and it was not as bitter or as uh, uh, calculating as I seem to hear from you. I'm not sure. I forgot followed the first part of what you're saying really well, so let me address that first. Madison, I wrote about this in the book, I don't mention it today, he did have a faith in colonization. He was a member of the Virginia and the National Society. According to Harriet Martineau, who visited him in, in his last years, he had an almost religious faith that they were going to be able to work something out and that there would be general emancipation. As far as Lafayette, I think the one I, thing I know about him, he was more disappointed in Jefferson than he was in Washington. When he came to visit Jefferson in 1824, he was really disappointed to see all the slaves around. Still yet, I'm, the relationship with Washington, I don't know that much about. Why do you not mention Madison as being a founder and having put that $3,000, which was a lot of money in that? Let me tell you, this is a very short list. I could have put 30 people up here. I left out all the women who were involved in colonization except Harriet Waring. I had like 40 minutes, and I just, I couldn't. I can talk about them, but I, yeah, they're in the book. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, sir? Actually, two questions. When you speak of free blacks, were there a, a lot of blacks that were never slaves that came over that were free from the get-go? Uh, according to the latest research, and boy, we know a lot more than we did 20 or 30 years ago, um, some people slipped through the net of slavery in early Virginia, became free before the legislation that codified slavery really was in place. There are some famous families who were already free. Had been, they served an apprenticeship like seven years and then they were free. So that's one batch. And then there are children born of white mothers and African fathers in the 1600s and early 1700s. There's another batch. And so you get things like that. If you, you, you follow generally the status of the mother. So if you were born and you're mulatto and your mother's white, then you were free. Most, I mean, often that person would get put into some apprenticeship program really fast. But you know, it's these kinds of little things that, that um, create a free black class that has not been enslaved. Okay. And the second question is kind of blended in with the first one. I'm curious about how the emancipated slaves before the Civil War became emancipated. I can imagine there were at least three different things. Maybe some of them bought their freedom. Some of them perhaps had owners that volunteered to free them. Mm -hmm. And maybe sometimes they escaped. Or maybe there are some other choices. But I'm wondering, how did most of them become emancipated? Um, of the ones that went to Liberia, the, most of them were emancipated by uh, owners, but and often in their wills. That was a big part of it. Um, you've covered it pretty much. People could buy their own freedom. They could be awarded their freedom for service by the legislature. That happened occasionally. They could be emancipated while the owner's still alive or in, in the person's will. Um, and yeah, they could run away, although after that they hardly ever went to Liberia. <laughs> New York City looked a lot better to most people. Um, yes, sir. As I understand it, uh, Charles Taylor's forces savagely murdered President Doe when they had the coup in 1980. <coughs> Excuse me. Was that indicative of the ongoing hostility between the natives and the Virginia transplants? No, because uh, Doe, you know, Doe who did the coup in. Um, 1980 was 
pretty savagely murdered Tolbert and his cabinet shot him on the beach, but then uh, Taylor's group that killed Doe, those are, those are they're sort of no uh, uh, settlers, no Americo-Liberians involved in that. Um, there are still regional, tribal, ethnic identifications that are powerful and important there, and, and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf says that in her book, that they have to overcome that, that they have to move beyond the clan and look at the nation. So I think that's kind of the worst aspect of that possible being shown there. Does that answer your question? Um, this gentleman over here? I'm going to really make, oh, okay, fine. Could you talk some more about the initial relationship between the um, colonizers from America and the native people who were there, their social relationship, their economic relationship, um, which obviously planted the seeds for the future of the country. Yeah, I think it changed over time mightily. I have a. I started out being really down on the settlers when I started this research. I thought, oh my gosh, look what they did. They created this hierarchy. Now they never got engaged in the slave trade. They didn't have slaves, but they felt themselves morally and technologically superior. Now, when I began to read the letters and the material. I realized it was a lot more complicated than that, especially in the first 50 to 70 years. The people were pretty resourceful and did pretty much what they had to do to survive and to, they had an option. They were the minority. Were they gonna, the expression is often, go native and become like the um, groups? Because they were the minority. If they spread themselves out thinly through the country of Liberia, then they're lost. They have to stay together. Uh, so that's what they do. But once they had established, I think in the 20th century, they missed many opportunities to reach out and bring uh, indigenous groups into the higher education system, into the government, all that sort of thing. Yes, very much so. Yeah, D the Declaration of Independence is all. No, they're, on, they're working under one that Doe set up in 1986, which they'd like to get rid of and rewrite, and it's on the agenda, so I read. Yeah. Yeah, is there any connection between the money problems that you mentioned earlier and the fact that so many ocean-going vessels are registered in Liberia? Yes, I learned that from, uh, he's, they're gonna cut me off in just a second, but I learned all about that from eating, reading Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's book. I had wondered about Liberian registration for many years, and she explains it, so I can't, we have to stop, so <laughs> we can just send you the book. Yeah. What, what was the political structure of the first colonists that went there? Um, they thought, the colonization society thought that they, their agents and missionaries would run the show, but from the very beginning, from the doling out of food, it was kind of like Jamestown, from the doling out of food forward, they resisted, starting with Lot Carey, and uh, the settlers got in positions of authority pretty fast. Oh, absolutely. No. Oh, Lafayette did. He was very unhappy with how things turned out. Yep. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you.